This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 31st, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about whether we should worry more about quantum decryption in the past or in the future, the role of salt as a micronutrient and a constraint on the carbon cycle, and David Grimm is here with stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Since the era of the internet began, cryptography has gone from a game of spy versus spy to one of math versus computers. And as computers get more powerful, the problems they must solve to break encryption have gotten more difficult. But will quantum computers break these patterns and force new techniques for protecting information? I spoke with Adrian Cho about the possible effects of yet-to-come quantum computers on current encryption practices. Quantum computing has been in the news because right around the beginning of the year came out in news reports that the National Security Agency has been working on building a quantum computer and been funding research along those lines. This program came out in the leaked documents from Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor, and they got a fair amount of news play. But my interest in the subject has sort of been percolating for a number of years. I've been following the developments in quantum information and quantum computing since the late 90s. And to be honest about it, we don't actually seem all that much closer to having a quantum computer now than we did back then. And at the same time, it's been clear that there have been advances in other fields that maybe would kind of blunt the effectiveness of a quantum computer as a code cracker. Okay. So let's start with the decryption side. Why might quantum computers be so much better at cracking codes? Well, it's not the case that a quantum computer could break every type of encryption. As far as researchers know, it could only surely break a certain type of encryption, which is known as asymmetric or public key encryption. And and it's only known to be able to break the algorithms that are widely in use now. And the reason is a bit subtle, but it's most easily explained with a specific example. There's an algorithm called RSA, which is used widely on the internet to initiate secure communications. And 
basically what happens in RSA is that if you want to receive a message, then you publish this public key, which is a large, a very large number that can be factored into two primes. And so you pass this public key and if somebody wants to send you a message, there's a recipe that they can use with this public key to scramble the message in a way that it's very difficult, essentially impossible, to figure out what your original message, which you turned into a number before you encoded it, what that original message was. But when the sender sends you the message, you still have a private key mm-hmm. that interlocks with that published public key in a way so that the original number pops back out. What's an example of where that might be used? Well, for instance, if you want to buy something, say, from a retailer online, right, you're going to start a secured socket mm-hmm. connection, and that is initiated typically with a public key encryption protocol to establish the secure connection. So the reason a quantum computer is a threat to public key cryptography, for example, in the case of RSA, is that if you could factor that public key into its two prime factors, then you could actually figure out what the private key was. And if you were an eavesdropper, you could do the exact same steps that the recipient is going to do to unscramble the message. And so the only reason that it's secure is that it's very hard for a computer to factor a very large number, right? This is not something that can be done easily, and it requires a lot of steps. And the reason that a quantum computer would be able to break public key encryption is that it can take advantage of quantum effects, in particular this effect called interference, to basically factor a large number in many fewer steps. Therefore, if you had a real bona fide quantum computer, you could factor these public keys for RSA, for example, and you would be able to break the encryption. So speaking of real bona fide quantum computers, how close is the quantum technology to being able to accomplish this? The reality is that scientists are very, very far from being able to do that now. To make a quantum computer, you need a thing called qubits, right? Mm -hmm. So an ordinary computer runs on bits that can either be set to a zero or to a one, and so you encode all your numbers in binary. But a qubit would be something like a quantum particle, perhaps an ion or a little loop of superconductor that could actually be in two different states for zero or one, or because of the rules of quantum mechanics, could actually be in both states at the same time in this kind of indeterminate zero and one state. And what's more, if you had, say, a thousand of these qubits, you could make a connection between them called entanglement so that even though each is in this kind of indeterminate state, there's all these correlations between them. And it's that massive state of qubits where they're all entangled that you really need as a starting point to do these algorithms that would use quantum interference to speed up things like factoring. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that you've got a dilemma because... To keep a qubit in one of these two ways at one state, it has to be very exquisitely isolated from the environment. But at the same time, to do the calculation, the qubits have to be able to interact. So you're, you're really trying to fight two battles. And the fact of the matter is that right now, researchers, physicists are struggling to control handfuls of qubits where to build a real quantum computer, you probably need hundreds or thousands. Right. And so 
There are a few obstacles to getting quantum technology to decode these algorithms. But if such a simple measure, such as just changing the way we pass information, would defeat this anyway, why would anyone invest money in quantum decryption? That's a very good question, right? And my guess is that nobody would invest in particular in a quantum computer for decryption if that were the case, if you were to show that you could defeat a quantum computer for decryption ahead of time, then probably you wouldn't. And NSA, in all likelihood, would lose interest in this kind of thing. But, you know, if you talk to the physicists and the people in the computer scientists who are working on a quantum computer, really what they'll tell you is that they see sort of the ultimate goal as being much more related to science, right? Mm -hmm. That what they see a quantum computer is being able to do is to simulate other quantum systems. So, for example, the folding of a protein as it folds itself into some particular shape or another that gives it its function, that's happening on the molecular scale and it's a quantum process. And it turns out that if you had a quantum computer, you might be able to simulate other quantum systems much faster than you can with an ordinary computer. So if you ask the scientists, they'll tell you, well, there are lots of other things that we can do with a quantum computer. That said, it seems in the wider world, the perceived killer application for a quantum computer is cryptography. And so that does become the whole issue, right? If you were able to defeat a quantum computer with some simpler technology ahead of time, would NSA or any other company that's interested in cryptography invest in this kind of research? I don't know. There's reason to think they might not. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other point I thought that you made that it was really interesting in the article was that, you know, in the future, we may be able to defeat any quantum decryption that's going on. But that doesn't mean that communication that's happened in the past that was encrypted in older ways, that will still be vulnerable. Is there anything that's going to be done about that? Or is that something, you know, we should worry about? Well, so it's interesting when you talk to uh, the computer scientists and the cryptography experts, uh, they all point this out first, right? <laughs> that it's not actually their big concern is that tomorrow somebody will have a quantum computer and that they're not going to be able to log into their bank account. It's not the threat that this is going to happen tomorrow, but rather the possibility that this is going to happen in 10 or 20, maybe 30, 50 years, but somebody will be able to just basically take all the stored up encrypted messages that have been sent, if they've been recording them, and retrospectively go back and read them all. The only defense against that is that you have to make sure whatever information might be floating out there is encrypted in some way that it can't be hacked. And this is actually one of the reasons that post-quantum cryptography is kind of blooming as a field, is that there's this realization that it's not just the attack 20 years from now that you're worried about, but it's finding some new algorithm where you can re-encrypt all the stuff that's stored now so that it would be secure. Obviously, that's a matter of actually going through the effort and making the investment and making sure you've chased down all your secure documents and, and improved the encryption. And even now, you've got an interest in doing that because hackers get better and better mm -hmm. and more and more capable. All right. Very interesting. Thanks, Adrian, so much for talking with me. Sure. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho writes about the cryptography arms race in this week's issue. Salt, good old sodium chloride, is essential for life. Living cells cannot get by without it. But what effect does this craving for salty goodness have, not just on a cellular or organismal scale, but a global scale? 
I spoke with science news writer Elizabeth Panisi about how salt could impact animal behavior, food webs, ecosystems, and the planet as a whole. So sodium is one of those essential elements like phosphorus, nitrogen, and carbon. In the body, cells pump sodium out so that they can keep the rest of their cellular contents inside. Now, bacteria and plants have cell walls to do this, but our cell membranes are leaky, and so we need an active mechanism to keep a good osmotic balance between the inside and the outside of the cell. And that's a pretty energetic process, right? Yeah, it's very energetic. It takes about one-third the cell's energy to pump these sodium ions and keep things in balance. You have some great examples in your story of the lengths that animals go to obtain salt from the environment. Can you share some of those? Sure. Well, so plant eaters tend to be the ones that have the most trouble because plants don't have a lot of salt in them, whereas animals accumulate salt. And so if you're a lion, you eat an animal that has a lot of salt in it. So anyway, so plant eaters do go to some extremes to get sodium in their diet. And probably the most dramatic example are these Mormon crickets. If they're salt-deprived, they start eating each other. And in the process of chasing down another cricket, and then the cricket escaping and chasing down another cricket, they can set up mass migrations of the crickets. Wow. And then what was the other one? Butterflies? Oh, butterflies, yes. So butterflies do something called puddling. And male butterflies will go to the edge of a puddle and sip in the salty water that's right at the edge. They then take that salt and package it with their sperm and give it as a gift to the female that they're courting. The female takes that salt and puts it in the egg so the caterpillar will basically have a leg up when it's munching on plants and needing salt. Well, it's a pretty complex behavior all around salt. But this story is about what kind of factor salt is at a different scale, at a community or ecosystem level. What gave researchers an inkling that this might be an important question? Well, the first clues came when researchers looked at salt preferences in ants living at different distances from the coast. They found that the further inland they looked, the more the ants craved salt. This suggested that salt might be a limiting factor for these and other organisms living inland. So they began to wonder well, what impact that salt limitation might have on the ecosystem. If salt limited the insect's growth in numbers, how would that alter their role in the food web, for example? So how did they demonstrate that these uh, landlocked insects craved salt? So what they did is they set up these tests where they would put out a, a vial with a cotton ball full of salt solution and a vial full of sugar solution. And normally you think of ants sort of just going for the sugar, but the more inland the researchers got, the more the ants went after the salt solution, almost to the point where they ignored the sugar. Oh, that's really interesting. And so then they decided, well, maybe this has an effect on the food webs. And as these experiments got more complex and more detailed, we actually started to see that it might have an effect on the carbon cycle. How might that work? So they set up these experimental plots where they would put salt water on some plots and not on other plots, and then they waited to see what would happen. And in one experiment, which they did over the course of a year, they found that the number of termites and the amount of fungi increased quite a bit. In addition, the amount of decomposition 
increased an average of 41%. So basically, having more salt allowed for the carbon turnover to be quicker because what happens is when these termites and these fungi, they chew up the leaves and they help break down the leaf litter on the forest floor, that leaf litter stores a lot of carbon. And so once that's broken down, the carbon is released back into the atmosphere. And so the saltier the area, the more of this turnover was seen? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So what it implies is that in forests that are farther inland, carbon turnover is slower. So that means the forests by growing, take up carbon and take it out of the atmosphere. When the tree falls down or the leaves drop off, they are gradually recycled so that the carbon is released. But if you have an inland forest, this process might be slower, so the carbon might be stored for longer periods. Okay. So how could this potentially important role for salt in the carbon cycle be impacted by, say, climate change? So one idea is that it's known that hurricanes will transport salt far inland, farther inland than it would normally go. And there's a worry that climate change will lead to more hurricanes and more intensive hurricanes. So it's possible that you'll get more hurricanes, the inland forests will be saltier, and that will release more carbon, which could set up a positive feedback, more carbon, more climate change, more hurricanes. So that's going from a very small scale of a micronutrient all the way up to the global carbon cycle. What's next for this research? Is there uh, projects in the works to shore up some of these claims? Well, I think what they need to do is look on a longer term to see how whether these effects last over a long period of time, look at more organisms and in more different places. Okay. Elizabeth Panisi, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. Elizabeth Panisi explores salt-starved lands in this week's science. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on parasite sexual mind control. Parasites can do more than hurt the health of their hosts. They have been shown to actually exert control over the host's actions. And in this case, we're going to get really specific about what a parasite can make happen and what they can't. Right. And just to give a specific example, there's actually a parasite, there's a fungus parasite that infects ants that actually turns them into zombies. It forces the ants to actually change their behavior. They start climbing up the stems of plants, and then they actually die up there, and these spores sort of sprout from their head. It's all kind of disgusting. We've got a picture of it on the site if you want to see it. So we do know, as you mentioned, Sarah, that parasites can take over the mind of the host. The real question with this study is, there are also sexually transmitted parasites, and you would imagine sexually transmitted parasites would want to make their hosts have sex more to increase their transmission rates. But scientists don't really see this in nature, and the question is why? So this is not something that's been studied in the wild. What did the researchers do to see whether it was even a viable idea? Well, they created a mathematical model, and they invented two strains of a hypothetical parasite, one that was an ancestor strain that did not make its hosts have sex more, and a mutant that did. And they ran a simulation. They introduced both of these strains into a host, at least mathematically, and they ran it a number of times. And what they did was if a mutant uh, was doing well, they replaced it with a mutant that exerted more and more power over 
the sex life of its host. And what they found after they did this a number of times was that mutants did not evolve to make their host have more sex. So even in this controlled environment where you're just trying to see if this conveys any advantage, they didn't have much success? That's right. These mutant parasites just tended to burn out and die. And the researchers think it's because it's maybe actually a bad idea to make your host have sex more. And there are a number of reasons for this. One of them is if your host is so focused on sex Your host may not be eating, breathing, (laughs) doing some other things it needs to do. And if your host dies, you die. Also, it actually may take a lot of energy for the parasites to exert this kind of control on their host. And it may just take so much energy that they actually ended up burning themselves out. So all this, even though it's a mathematical model, may explain why we really don't see this very much in nature. So if we don't see this in nature and it doesn't work in simulated environments, what can we learn from this study? Well, scientists are still interested in sexually transmitted diseases and sexually transmitted parasites. So this may give us some more insight into how these parasites are transmitted, even if they aren't taking over the minds of their hosts. Next up, we have a story on the loss of large mammals from the North American continent. Up until 11,000 years ago, this continent was covered in giant mammals, mammoths, ground sloths, those giant versions of sloths. But sadly today, we can't go into the woods and see a giant beaver. (laughs) At one point, though, everyone thought that the recently arrived humans hunted and ate all these so-called megafauna. Why is this hypothesis under fire, Dave? It's actually been under fire for a while. It was proposed about 40 years ago and was called the overkill hypothesis, this idea that Paleo-Indians, which were the first Americans, when they moved into the continent, they wiped out all these very large mammals. But scientists have sort of been poking holes in this idea for a long time. They've suggested that maybe it wasn't humans, maybe it was climate change, maybe it was some other factors. There really hasn't been a lot of evidence one way or the other, and that's where this new study comes in. And so if climate or environmental changes were the root of these extinctions, what kind of new evidence could be used to maybe seal that deal? Well, the real trick here is figuring out the time frame, because we know humans arrived in the continent about 12,700 years ago. What we don't know exactly is when these what we call megafauna, started dying out. It was somewhere around that time. We don't know for sure. And so what this new study did was really focus on radiocarbon dating. And it also looked at a part of North America that really hadn't been studied a lot before, sort of the northeastern part of North America, a place that encompasses today states like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and the Canadian province of Ontario. So when they took a close look at how old some of these megafauna bones were, what did they find? Did they find that there was a big overlap between humans and giant sloths? They didn't, actually. And they, what they found was that a lot of these megafauna seemed to be dying out long before, or at least a couple thousand years before humans first entered the scene, and that there wasn't a whole lot of overlap even when humans entered the scene between them and these giant creatures. The other thing which is interesting is that the researchers didn't see any evidence on these bones, no cut marks, no signs of butchering, things that you would attribute to humans hunting and killing these animals. So there's a lot of evidence suggested that we humans are not to blame. Minimal overlap, not a lot of hunting. 
Is there any way to salvage the overkill hypothesis? <laughs> well, it may have been overkill, but maybe not overkill by us, but by the environment instead. And what the researchers suggest is that, and in fact, what we know is that the climate got a lot colder about 12,700 years ago. There was a 1,300-year-long cold snap called the Younger Dryas, which may have actually done a lot of these animals in. Finally, we have a story on advanced gamification. Crowdsourcing is all the rage these days. Although I have yet to give any money to a Kickstarter project, I have signed up for the online game Fold It, where people all over the world help to figure out how to fold proteins. It's a very complicated problem. A related group has made the switch from proteins to RNA and added a wet lab component. How did this come about, Dave? Well, it came about from Folded, and the real question here is, how does RNA fold? Which is a question that even our best supercomputers have a hard time answering. So what the researchers did for this study was they turned, as you mentioned, Sarah, to gamers. And for this study, almost 40,000 gamers. So a lot of people playing this game. What was interesting about this was a lot of these crowdsourcing campaigns, which science has utilized recently, all sort of take place virtually. And what was neat about this particular study was that a lot of what the gamers were doing was actually being translated into real labs, as you said, wet labs in the real world. So there was actually a lot of physical science being done as a result of this gaming. So how did they actually hook up a virtual game with a wet laboratory? Well, the first thing was that all of these tens of thousands of players didn't get through all stages of the game. In fact, the game sort of weeded them out to about a thousand people who participated in sort of the wet lab portion of the study. And the way that they did this was their actual, some of these structures that they generated were actually fed into a machine that actually synthesized this RNA, and the scientists were actually able to analyze the structure of this RNA to see how accurate the predictions from the gamers were. So we keep talking about this as a study. This result was published. What was kind of the main finding of the study? Well, what was really cool is the players came up with some new rules for how RNA folds, and they were better than the standard software that researchers currently use to model this. 99% of the time. So they're really best at the computers here. And because they did such a good job, this research paper actually has, get this, 37,000 authors on it. Wow. <laughs> okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new clinical trial which may help curb peanut allergies in children. Also, a story about a modern recipe for preserving ancient Chinese scrolls. For Science Insider, we've got a story about how the U.S. Congress and the National Institutes of Health are not seeing eye to eye on science education. Also, a story about new concerns about avian flu in China. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science. This week's Science Live is about how much access you have or should have to your own personal research data if you participate in a clinical trial, for example. And next week's Science Live is about combining alternative and modern medicine. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.